Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Born to Talk Radio show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka, and this show is about conversations plus connections equals community, followed by what's your story. And what a story I've got for you today. I would like to introduce to you my guest, Cassidy McMillan. Welcome to the show, Cassidy. Oh, thanks for having me on, Marsha. It's great to be here. Yes, it is. And and uh, I just, for our audience to know, um, you are so accomplished. You're an actress. You're a, an award-winning film director, producer, writer, and speaker, and a returning guest to the Born to Talk radio show. And you know, the last time we were together live in the studio was January of 2016. I don't know if you realize it was that long ago that we were together. And I know a lot has happened since then, but I thought we could start our show today. For those listeners that weren't following me back in those days, I thought maybe you could just tell our our, our listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from and, and those kinds of things about you. Sure. Um, I'm originally from the East Coast, uh, both the southeast and northeast, and okay. uh, I moved out to Los Angeles to pursue more uh, film work and acting work, uh, also screenwriting, just to have more opportunities out here on the on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. That's neat. So you do all of that, don't you? Screenwriting, all of that. Have you written a yes, book? Yes, I do. Um, I've written screenplays. Um, not uh-huh. a book, but uh, I also write for uh, magazines and uh, newspapers. I've written nice. for, I, I originally started writing very young uh, and always was fascinated with film and scripts. And if I watched hmm. a movie as a kid and I didn't like the ending, I would sit down and uh, type out a new one, you know, whether on the computer <laughs> or whatnot. And, um, if I was oh. like, oh, I can change that, you know, and I realized the power of film through that. So, yeah, and, the, um, and then back in high school, I was editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper and um, also wrote for college, but then also started writing um, scripts. And also at the same time, I was acting um, as a kid and then as a teen and uh, then as an adult. And uh, so, like, one uh, script that I wrote for a two-hour television movie, um, an actress that I sort of wrote it for in particular, uh, also with a role for myself in the uh, film, but I Hmm. wrote it for this uh, Emmy-winning and Golden Globe award-winning actress. Um, I I get, yeah, I probably won't say her name right here in the interview. I was going to say. Yeah, we had a private conversation, so I won't. Uh, go into that because the the film never uh, got made but anyway it did get in her hands and um, she ended up calling me uh, out of the blue and I didn't even know it had gotten into her hands and she called me and we had a lovely conversation for about half an hour and um, which was a surprise you know to have a Mm -hmm. golden globe winning actress call you uh and she loved the script and all of that she you know said she would have maybe loved to do it and all of that and she 
said, you know, I expect to see your name on the big screen someday and all of that. Oh, so, nice. Yeah, so that kind of gave me the encouragement like, and to let me know I was on the right path and uh, that the stories I wrote uh, were being well-received. And so I said, yeah, I can make the leap to Los Angeles, um, having prior done theater acting and plays and musicals and commercials and film work in uh, Florida and in the Southeast. And so, yeah, it gave me the inspiration to make the trek out to Los Angeles. That's real. How confirming that must have been for you at a, at a young age to, you know, because it's such a difficult career. You know, it's it's so competitive and it's it's just it's just it's not an easy career you might want to do it you might be that person listening today that might want to do something like that but being um able to really do it must have you know that must have been very that must have been a great feeling for that person to get in touch with you you right you and it was speaking go ahead no i was going to say it was interesting too at that time we also discussed just the uh the subject of how the industry was male-dominated as far as mm-hmm. who gives the green light to film a television movie or a film for the theater and, you know, just who was controlling the money, you know. Uh, so it was, you know, because, I mean, here she was Golden Globe award-winning, Emmy award-winning, but that wouldn't have been enough to get the financing alone, you know, mm-hmm. it would have had mm-hmm. to been greenlit uh, through male executives. And so just interesting, you know, that now, though, through the Me Too movement and all of that, that um, just women are starting to come into their own and be able to uh, create financing, getting it, and mm-hmm. producing blockbusters um, that yeah. years top grossing films many were directed or written by uh, or produced by women so mhm it's the tide has definitely changed hasn't it yes well it's it's interesting as you're talking about um acting we're going to we're going to be talking about that in the first part of our show and i know that you that you've just completed being um doing a run you portrayed you were um in the lead role the name of your um, character was Brooke Wyeth. It was an L.A. Um, production of the Tony Award nominated, which is, that's pretty darn good, and Pulitzer Prize finalist drama, Other Desert Cities, written by uh, John Robin, is it Bias? How does, how does that Bates. person say his last name? Bates. Okay, Bates. I didn't want to get that wrong. Right. Okay, well, how exciting. So I thought maybe what we could talk about in the beginning here is, can you tell me a little bit about the play and and what drew you to the role and how you came to be in it? I'd love to hear about that. Sure. I had seen the auditions for other desert cities, and I recalled that it was uh, had been nominated for the Tony uh, on Broadway and all of that, and that it was written by John Robin Bates, uh, B-A-I-T-Z, and he was the creator mm-hmm. of the hit ABC TV series Brothers and Sisters. He also oh. was one of... Yeah. Oh, exactly. yes. yeah. I didn't that know was, that, but yeah, you had the same person. Yeah, Got it. so, right, and, and it starred Rachel Griffiths and Sally Field, and 
Um, Mm -hmm. And then actually Rachel Griffiths played the part of Brooke Wyeth on Broadway. And, Mm. um, right, yeah. And uh, John Robin Bates also was one of the writers for the NBC series The West Wing. And anyway, yeah, his writing is really stellar and phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And plus he writes women's roles so fantastically. And so when I saw the auditions, because... Not a lot of theaters um, are producing this particular show, which is an amazing show. Uh, I was like, okay, where is it at? And uh, Mm -hmm. I read the whole script then and there, so I really only learned of the auditions like a week before the auditions. And when I read the script from beginning to end, I was just like, I have to play Brooke Wyeth. I just completely identified with her and I was like I have to do this role and so I just prepared well, why don't you tell me a little bit about the character what what well who is Brooke Wyeth in this in this production Brooke Wyeth is uh the daughter of well first of all Brooke Wyeth is an author she's uh she writes novels as well as she's a magazine writer, journalist, uh, mm-hmm. and very uh, idealistic and uh, also empathetic, uh, thoughtful character, and a good observer and a and good writer. But she's haunted by a family tragedy in which uh, her older brother named Henry, whom she idealized, and he was her best friend in school and high school, uh, but her older brother got involved with a sort of a political activist organization that kind of went wrong, and uh, he was implicated in the bombing of an army recruiting station, uh, unclear whether he actively knew about the bombing or not. He said he didn't, mm-hmm. uh, and then he ended up committing suicide. Oh, boy. And, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, and he jumped off a uh, ferry uh, in the Seattle area. And anyway, Brooks' parents are well-known uh, GOP, so Republican conservative mm-hmm. parents, and her dad was an actor in the golden age of Hollywood and acted on set with, like, Ronald Reagan. And uh, Is this based mom- on a true story? No, it did no, it's oh, oh. It, it's not, okay, okay, but it it, it, it okay. right. It's okay. it, it kind of uh, mirrors I thought, Oh my goodness. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it kind <laughs> of ahead. mirrors some things uh and mm-hmm. uh so then Brooke Wyatt's mom was a screenwriter and so I guess that's how her mom and dad met. Anyway, so when mm-hmm. Ronald in the story when uh Brooke's uh, parents like I said were friends with the Reagans and then when Ronald Reagan became president President Reagan, in the story, made her father an ambassador. And so, anyway, mm. her parents are staunch conservatives, well-known, bull, you know, that hang out with the Reagans and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they lived in Beverly Hills, Bel Air. And so that's sort of the backstory. And so, needless to say, when her brother Henry was implicated in this radical bombing, uh you know, and her parents are these well-known Republican and former Hollywood, you know, celebrities. Uh, 
obviously just created chaos in the family, not to mention in any family, you know, the suicide of mm-hmm. a child is, the loss of a child is devastating. So with that, the, the family retreated from Bel Air to Palm Springs, California, and uh, Brooke went to college on the East Coast, became a magazine writer, novelist, but she never really got over the death of her older brother, Henry, and then she recently had also just been through a divorce after being married for just three years, and so all of that just kind of mm. created a whole depression, wow. so she was in and out mm. of mm. hospitals and treatment centers for the past five years or so on the East Coast, and so this is her first visit home to her family in the year 2004, it takes place on Christmas Eve 2004. So she's oh arrived in New York after not being uh, with the family for six years. And when she arrives, they think she's just about to publish her next novel, which in the literary field everyone has sort of been like, is Brooke Wyeth going to publish another novel? Uh, she's well known. and But she announces it's actually not a novel her next book that's about to be published in a month or so when she arrives Christmas Eve, she announces that it's not a novel, it's a memoir, and it's a memoir about the family and her brother's oh suicide. Boy. And, yeah, and what she mm. feels about the parents and what she feels their shortcomings mm-hmm. were in dealing with all mm. that. Wow. That's, that's that really I you know that that really it does sound very compelling and I I do want to really congratulate you because um Cassidy you've gotten incredible reviews and I I would really like to share um a couple of these reviews with our audience because I it just it's I feel so honored that you're joining me but I just I think that these reviews are just fabulous so um, an L.A. Times critic wrote um, of your performance as Brooke Wyeth in other desert cities, uh, and this is quoting, Cassidy McMillan, simply brilliant as a determined author whose steely demeanor sees a serit- – how, how do I say that? Certis- how do you say that word? C-I-R-C-U-I-T-O-U-S. Oh, oh yeah, he wrote um, steely demeanor sets the circuitous. Circuitous. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for helping me. I'll have to look that word up. Circuitous plot in motion. Um, Her inner vulnerability is well camouflaged until the play's most crucial moment. That was the Times critic. The Orange County Tribune wrote, uh, Cassie McMillan Brooks starts off tentatively nervous and subdued, as if still contending with the ghost of her depression, as well as dreading her family's reaction to her in memoir. But as the story progresses and we begin to see just how important to her continued existence that this novel is, the candle flame that is Brooks' restrained emotion begins to ignite into a bonfire of determination and self-preservation those are wonderful that those are wonderful um reviews and congratulations um on on that that's that's outstanding what i'd like thank to you know, yeah i mean i was yeah just really honored and humbled by their reviews and oh, i you appreciate that the los angeles times and orange county Tribune oh, yes. critics coming that's out just and then really tremendous you know, so I'm curious to know, how do you prepare emotionally 
to, to, to portray a role that is so complex that Brooke was and spans a range of emotions from depression, depression to anger to vulnerability. How do you prepare for that? Well, for <laughs> me uh, as an actor, uh, to kind of summarize, uh, I'll just say it is a, a process and uh, – mm-hmm. You know, we only had about a month and a half to prep the show, but um, within that, you know, I just try to focus on, well, if that was me, what would I be thinking? And then you, Mm -hmm. for myself, I try to always bring some of myself to a character and portray the role from a place of authenticity. Uh, Mm -hmm. And... So I might think maybe of something in my life that was sad or upsetting and how would that make me feel or maybe like Brooke felt her parents betrayed her and betrayed her older brother Henry because she saw them like push him away and one time in an argument saw her father slap Henry across the face uh, when they were mm-hmm. arguing. And, you know, so she felt that the parents also pushed Henry away and blame them for a good part of the tragedy. So anyway, I try to look at maybe past experiences of how would I feel if someone betrayed me, how have I felt when maybe someone did throughout my life, and Mm -hmm. look at that as well as researching different characteristics of depression and also, like I think you and I will get into the documentary that I'm also directing yes. on suicide and bullying. Uh, I know from my work with families who've lost a child to suicide, uh, what their reactions are, as well as I have worked with, spoken with, met with uh, siblings uh, who their sibling committed suicide. And so I right. kind of was able to factor that in to also give Brooke that authenticity coming from me to to let the writer's words come through me. You know, I'm the tool mm-hmm. of the for the script to come through for that character. Right. And so, yeah, just kind of preparing that way as well as some, a lot of times I listen to music. I pick out different songs that I think uh, mm-hmm. I can relate to the character and listen to them a lot. <laughs> That's interesting. And uh, sure. to just sort of get me in the mood. And always before every performance, I'll listen to certain songs and uh, quietly to get back into character. And then really while I'm in the rehearsal mode, too, um, like they kind of call it method acting, where you mm-hmm. kind of put yourself in the position of that character. I I don't go too deeply into method, but I do use parts of it to even where in my daily life I would just think, oh, I wonder what Brooke would do in this situation or what she would that's think of this. That's interesting. Kind of yeah. apply it to that, that too. So, yeah. Hmm. What about the actual physical demand of doing a a two hour? play night after night would did you do were you did the play run seven days a week um no we did uh three performances uh every weekend 
but um, oh, also that, okay. yeah, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but also on Thursdays I would run the show. Uh, <laughs> I would walk through the show myself. I would do the whole two-hour perform. I would do my two-hour performance <laughs> myself. Oh, that's um, great. Just so it wouldn't get rusty, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and even th- even when I was out and about, uh, like some of my cast members uh, laughed at one of the stories, uh, for instance, I was in rehearsal when I was trying to, because it was like 49 pages of dialogue that you wow. have to perform every night, you know, mm-hmm. you don't get mm-hmm. a second take or they're in front of the audience. <laughs> we do. And, you know, you have to live. memorize those 49 pages. And so I, I might have been pumping gas at the gas station, you know, and getting gas for my car and saying my lines out loud as I'm pumping gas. <laughs> So I'm, I'm I love sure that. some people walked by and looked at me. Look. I think they probably thought I was on a cell phone. Maybe, you know, they probably thought, I can't <laughs> see the mic in her ear. But, Who but, is she um, talking to? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but these great. days everybody's on their cell phone, so definitely uh, most people didn't think it was odd. But um, <laughs> but it was funny. Oh, I, I just took every waking opportunity to say the lines over and over and over and, and be like, no, mm-hmm. you know, to myself, like, no, um, she wouldn't say the line that way. It would be this way or emphasis on that word, not that one. And so I'm I'm always formulating it right up until opening night, which um, I, I think bet. at times maybe my director was like, what are you <laughs> doing during <laughs> some rehearsals? But especially just with the shortened rehearsal time, uh, like we had mm-hmm. to get this uh, two-hour show up, which is heavy with great dialogue, but heavy with mm-hmm. dialogue. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was, like, formulating it and molding it and, and testing out different things right until opening night when I knew, okay, I'm locking it down. The, really? the final week and fully lock it down opening night. Do you do, so you did some research um, about how to portray this character, right? I assume that, right. that you mentioned that, that you almost have to, don't you? You almost have to feel like you're stepping in. You you were that character, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and mm-hmm. like you said, first of all, also the physical demands, I, I meant to also add, just in rehearsal time and then during the production run, it was, you know, I had a very um, stringent diet that I ate and okay. uh, different things uh, like you know, for say, maybe a friend said, oh, come on out and, you know, we'll have a beer or a glass of wine or something. And it was like, no, mm-hmm. um, no, mm-hmm. thank you, you know, but but no. And, you know, just really consistent with like water, hydration, um, drinks with electrolytes in it, uh, lots mm-hmm. of vitamins, supplements, and exercise, uh, plus some meditation and things like that. And so... Yeah, and before a show, I never eat heavy at all. I hardly uh-huh. eat a lot. I just eat something very light, uh, maybe just vegetables, water, crackers, just something to get me through the show uh, mm-hmm. so that I'm not starving midway, But then, um, and then electrolytes and things like that. And then after a performance, you know, so maybe then at midnight, you know, I would have dinner <laughs> when I got home. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, but, um, yeah, there's definitely a routine, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe just some ginger ale always kind of calms me too. So sure. things like that, but during the whole rehearsal time and, and through the run of the, the show is very regimented. And, 
then as far as research, um, like I said, yes, you know, I, I look, you know, studied depression and things from suicide and all that, but plus I also listened to any inter- any interview I could find with John Robin Bates, who wrote the script, um, any interviews uh-huh. he did about the play, um, interviews That's maybe great. of a few of the actors who debuted on Broadway when it received five Tony nominations on Broadway. Um, oh, wow. So just to kind of see, though especially just also myself, also being a writer, uh, an actress mm-hmm. primarily, but then who also writes, I wanted to see what Mr. Bates's thoughts were on the character and the play to see mm-hmm. where he was coming from, and I would try and pull from that. Even at one point I read some university thesis paper on the play um, <laughs> just, uh, to, to see because uh, John Robin Bates was asked about it or something in some interview. So, so yeah, a, a how lot many of characters? How many characters are actually in this play? How many performers are there? Five total, including myself. So five of us. Wow! So that's not very many, is it? I no. mean. I'm just I'm I'm just thinking about that. So you had to personally memorize over 50 pages of dialogue just for your role, yes. correct? Just for my just for my role. Wow, that's a, right. that's a, how I don't know how long did that take you to actually memorize that? I mean, that's a lot. Did that just um, weeks about and weeks? About a month, about a month, mm-hmm. you know, about 4 weeks. Uh, wow. Sure. It's um, just, and my character of Brooke uh, has um, two two really long monologues, uh, right? So mm-hmm. with the monologue for any audience member uh, that doesn't know, a monologue is just that character speaking on stage. Um, you're not mm-hmm. having dialogue with somebody. Saying, so uh, in one scene, Brooke has a two full page monologue. So if you had two type pages of a book back to the you know, so there's That's that. a and then, lot. And then another one the play closes with a two page monologue with just Brooke speaking uh to the mm-hmm. audience as if she's in a bookstore reading from her novel or memoir that came out. And um mm-hmm. she is reading and again that's a two page monologue. Um wow. and both are very uh uh both are very emotional, and the second to last one, which comes at the end of Act Two, which, uh, like the Los Angeles Times critic noted in the Tribune, um, Orange County Tribune critic noted, um, mm-hmm. the second to last monologue that Brooke does is very hmm, physically demanding, emotionally demanding. It's very kind of um, gut wrenching, and. Mm-hmm. Speaking, she's kind of letting all of her life of anger and everything, but also vulnerability, showing to her mother and father um, separately, and it's 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 um, quite emotional, emotional. I bet. And I yeah, bet. and at and at almost as I begin it, like my body just starts, like my hands just start to shake, and so by the end of it, hmm. like my hands are just shaking and. Um, you know, I'm not doing it purposely. It's just the emotion of it and the intensity. It's just uh, was very intense, and uh, so yeah, I'm definitely 
in and I bet you must be exhausted. Oh, very much. I mean, yeah. it must really take <laughs> its toll. Um, it one of the things that you had mentioned to me um, is that when the I, I, and I'm curious to know about this is what your what the audience reaction is to your performance and to the to the whole program, and the fact that you go and you speak with the audience um, after each show. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yes, after each performance, um, all of us in the cast, all five of us, we uh, go out to the lobby and meet with the audience. Um, I also had some audience members just stay in their seats. They were just so, I guess... uh, It's gripping. Emotionally affected, yeah, Mm -hmm. by the play that they were just like, we just want to sit here. And then they were like, can we just talk to you about the play? Can we talk to you about your character? I'm like, sure. So we... Like one night I almost had like about an hour after show discussion with uh, these three lovely audience members uh, in the theater. That's nice. But um, they they really take to the show, and I have actually remarked to friends, family, and uh, fellow cast members about that with this show, uh, of all the plays I've done and whatnot, but with this show, all like almost every audience member wanted to hug me. Like normally, audience members oh. would shake my hand or pat me on the back or the arms, say, "Oh, great job!" or "That was really moving." Or uh-huh. this, that. But with this show, not only that, but like they hug me. They're like, "Can I just hug you? Can I do?" And I'm like, "Sure." I go, "Do we need to hug it out?" They're like, "Yeah, you know." And <laughs> oh, because the man. audience, when they got to the lobby, they were in tears because the last monologue I read in the play that closes the show is very emotional, and I'm crying. And as I'm reading. Uh, a thing from my memoir, uh, mm-hmm. and so they would just come up to me and hug me, and they're like, "But you're okay, right?" And Brooke's okay, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm like, that's. I'm like, yes, yes, I'm okay, and Brooke's okay, and um, oh. so yeah, it was just really touching, and it and it was as an actor, that's the best compliment because you know that you, you touched them with your performance, and they mm-hmm. felt what you felt, and you had that shared connection, you know, I mean, and it's one thing, like a friend of mine who came out to see it, and he was like, wow, he's like, you know, you've been my friend for years, and like, seeing you in this just like, like, blew me away, and he's like, yeah, you know, and, but, but he was saying that how, he goes, you know, when you watch something on TV, or Netflix, or in a movie theater, you know, yes, you can have that emotional reaction, and he's like, but to actually be sitting there in the theater, watching it he's very organic like beyond Mm -hmm. tv yeah Mm -hmm. and he says and then you know to talk that with the actors afterward like there you are you know and he can talk immediately to you and that's why yeah these audience members you know are like i just want to give you a hug and you know and and that's great tell you how the story affected me and and for me too i wanted audiences to also be left with you know maybe call that family member or that friend or that person that means a lot to you that maybe you haven't spoken to in a long time and mm-hmm. you know to also kind of think about that and um sure so yeah they so audiences just found it really inspiring and it was just I was really well, humbled by it I bet you were you know I'd like to take us because it's kind of a great segue because we're talking about suicide and um, one of the reasons that you were on my show a couple of years ago was was about your documentary. 
and I thought that we could spend the rest of our show because you are you've directed it, you've produced it, you've written your documentary, and the name of your film was called Bullies and Friends, and it's about teen bullying and suicide prevention. Uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about the documentary? I'd like like them to sort of have the background about this this film. Sure. The documentary uh, takes an investigative look at the topic of youth bullying and suicides uh, related to bullying. And it, uh, while we address various issues or incidents of bullying or bullying-related suicides from across the globe, uh, mm-hmm. from the U.K. to Ireland to Canada to the United States, uh, we focus on the story through uh, the specific incident of a teen girl uh, who at the age of 14 committed suicide uh, after being bullied and threatened with death by three girls at her high school. And in her suicide note, she named these three girls. Mm-hmm. And the the incident led to an investigation uh that resulted in a precedent-setting court case where, the first, where for the first time in North America, uh, teenagers were charged with bullying through the charges of criminal harassment and utter wow. threats. And mm-hmm. so we followed the court case, but more importantly, I feel, we followed the family. And I do want to specifically state that the family wanted the documentary to be made and they wanted to be in the documentary if they did not mm-hmm. then I wouldn't have filmed it and mm-hmm. they wanted the documentary to be made so that other teens wouldn't follow the same path that their daughter did in committing suicide uh, mm-hmm. and in the story or in what happened the incidents that happened her the girl's younger brother was the one to find her um, in her bedroom after she committed suicide. He went in right. to get her for family dinner, and instead there's his sister deceased, you know, and, and mm-hmm. the parents were in the kitchen <sighs> prepping dinner. And that's how, right. I mean, so many of these incidents happen where, again, I've spoken with families, uh yeah, all throughout the United States and Canada and and uh about these incidents and it's just so off it's so awful obviously but it's yes. just something where you the parent thinks it's an average day they come home from work you know they're making dinner and little do they know that their daughter or son is deceased in Suffering. the bedroom until later you know so right it's just, yeah, yeah it's, it's a heavy subject. I remember when we were together talking about this a couple of years ago. Do you feature more than one person in this film in your Bullies and Friends? Were there, were there two um, incidents in this film, if I remember correctly? Right. We, yeah, just, we explore, yeah, we explore different incidents across the globe. We touch on uh-huh. um, different stories. We focus mainly on this one, but at the same time we parallel it with another story of a boy who was bullied who was mm-hmm. going to commit suicide, but his mom found his notebook where he was writing 
in his notebook he was going to commit suicide, and so she was able to prevent his death in time. And then, as Mm -hmm. it turned out, when the news of this girl's suicide hit, that mom got into contact with the mom of that girl, and they teamed up um, to work on anti-bullying uh, Wonderful initiatives for Wonderful. for schools. Mm-hmm. So the, the stories kind of I don't know dovetailed into another. And um, yes, sounds yeah, like so it. that family is in there, and we also speak with educational experts. We have Dr. Michelle Borba in the film. Uh, she's an NBC News mm-hmm. uh, Today Show contributor and author of like 23 best-selling books on parenting. And so Dr. Borba is in the film, who we really appreciate her time. Uh, and then also in the film, we provide bullying solutions through not only experts and um, the judge uh, who presided over the precedent case. We have an exclusive interview with the judge who handed down the who wrote and handed down the precedent-setting ruling, a female judge mm-hmm. by the way, and um, the judge declined all other interviews, like with CNN or whatnot, but uh, agreed to be in the film. And I interviewed her in the judge's chambers at the courthouse. And she was extraordinary and gave really fantastic information for schools to know, for law enforcement to know, for parents to know, mm-hmm. for kids uh, to understand mm-hmm. about when bullying becomes a criminal act and the repercussions right. it can have, as well as she shared a story from her childhood when she stepped hmm. in to prevent the girl from being bullied. And so wow. we have that. And then also just through the teens themselves that we interview in the film, we also interview one of the teenage girls who was brought to trial who was named in the suicide note. And she wanted to be in the film to help prevent future tragedies and <sighs> Just through her work, teens really right. think that. I remember knowing that and um, because in some ways she's a victim now of her, of her own behavior and she's also was very young at the time as well. Um, I, I think it's an important perspective. Um, how long did it take you to write and produce this film? Uh, several years. Um, I mean, if I could okay, write now, a long I would project. still add more um, uh-huh. to it, but as it is, we're uh, still raising the final financing through corporate means for mm-hmm. release of a film, because uh, people don't realize it can be five to six figures, uh, money-wise, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Uh, release an independent film, because you don't right. have a studio writing the check or anything. It's just mm-hmm. you as a filmmaker and uh, people who are... Um, who also want to join with you in your film and its cause to help prevent suicides, which is, that's why I made the film, to prevent future tragedies like these. It's, sure. There's always a place in these incidents where if just some, if one thing had changed, if a couple things had changed, if the boy or girl had known that help was available, that they weren't alone, mm-hmm. that this is an epidemic and that bullying the child who's committing the aggressive behavior is the one who has the insecurity or the jealousy or is sociopathic in some cases. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the child being bullied, we're trying to get the word out to them that there's no fault of theirs. 
you know, there's nothing wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Um, because also a uh, wrong notion with bullying that I hear or read online, people's comments, they say, oh, well, only weak kids get bullied. Well, number one, no one should be bullied or harassed because what we're talking about Correct. is physical abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, and, for instance, I always use the example that in a workplace as adults, Right. If if someone let let's say they work for a tech company and uh, they're in the office and a coworker comes up to them and says, you know what, I really hate you. And after work today in the employee parking lot, I'm going to beat you up or kill you. Um, well, obvi- obviously in the workplace, it'd be like, excuse me, there are mm-hmm. harassment regulations against that and I'm going to go to human resources or employee relations and and or I'm going to call the police because you've made a physical battery threat against me and and there is a charge uh, called making a terroristic threat where you're terrorizing someone Um, Mm -hmm. so that is a charge and but yet if the aggressor is under 18 at a school or at home on their computer saying to another classmate on the computer, I'm going to beat you up or I'm going to kill you or they do it on school property, I'm going to kill you after school, then somehow we as adults at schools across the country and in other countries just classify that as, oh, well, that's just schoolyard bullying. Mm-hmm. Yet in an adult workplace, it would be cause for calling law enforcement. So that's something that I'm also working to change, both with schools that I speak at as well as I work with government leaders on prevention initiatives and creating legislation that addresses this. I mean, this is physical abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, Why is it at schools, oh, if the aggressor then maybe actually beats up that other student, uh, then what? Then both, in some schools, both children get suspended or potentially Mm -hmm. expelled. The child who was the target of being bullied and beaten up certainly didn't cause it. And another wrong notion is that it only happens to quiet kids or that's so false. Really? You know, quarterbacks on football teams uh, get bullied. Uh, there was a young man who, you know, a, a oh, boy the college committed kid. suicide. You right. know, well, well, yes, well, there's Tyler Clemente, yes. And then, but even in, in, in high schools, like there was this one boy, I just can't think of his name, it was in the Northeast, but um, he committed suicide and he was a, a star on the football team. You know, wow. but he committed suicide, and you know it can happen to the most popular girl in school, the most popular boy in school. All it takes is mm-hmm. a, an aggressor, you know, who kind of stalks their target. I don't call them victims; I call them targets. Um, and you know, that's all it takes. So, I mean, anyone can be bullied, harassed, stalked. So it's just a false uh, thought to think, oh, it's just a quiet student or a student that, whatever, maybe is smaller or is inside. That that Mm -hmm. does not matter, and that's actually not part of the equation. The fault lies with the aggressor. 
Uh, mm-hmm. For their own reasons, whether insecurity, jealousy, normally, and or they're just a sociopath and they're mm-hmm. jealous of that other person. So, was there a particular reason that you wanted to tell this story? Was there something? What 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 was the inspiration that that made you want to get involved in a project um, like this? I had seen bullying in school, and I. Uh, stood up for several of my friends with an aggressor and then that aggressor turned on me and uh, Mm. one time tried to have a physical altercation with me and Hmm. all of that went, you know, I just told her leave my friends alone, stop harassing them, pushing them into lockers, whatever. But so I did have that and um, then I kind of just saw it too, whether in college or later even in the workplace, maybe just it would kind of be maybe one female who was jealous of another. So then she makes up lies about the person she's jealous about just to make sure everyone else hates that person. And um, the clinical term for that is relational aggression. And that happens with females. That Hmm. it's like for the female aggressor, it's much more psychological and then becomes physical as well. But normally mm-hmm. with relational aggression, with the aggressor, kind of like what I just said before, that it's not enough for that one girl or woman to hate the other female. They have to make sure that everybody hates her. So they mm-hmm. just, that aggressor just makes up lies and says we're going to shun her mm. from you know, our our clique, whatnot. So I had, had seen that. And anyway, when I heard this story of uh, this particular suicide and this young girl who loved animals, um, which I am an animal advocate, and, and uh, also this young girl maybe had been thinking of becoming an actress. She was in drama class. So, again, just myself as an actress, you know. So mm-hmm. I just kind of related to her in that sense. And um, just I just was outraged by the fact that this girl who could have contributed so much to society that we are all right. missing out on her, you know, who knows. She just she saw on. she saw no other way out, and that's that's what's so emotionally so, so sad. Like you had mentioned right. in the adult in the workplace, perhaps they go to their HR department, you know. Um, when you... Um, talk about solutions do you <clears throat> pardon me do you include in your film um parents and teens talking about these conditions in the school yes we do and okay we we highlight both in the sort of two parallel stories that we tell the true stories mm-hmm. of the girl who committed suicide and the boy who was going to commit suicide both moms uh, in the film, as we kind of go back and forth, cut back and forth from one story to another, um, but both moms relate or relay to the audience what the schools were doing or not doing as mm-hmm. all of this was going on. Like the girl who killed herself, she went at least three times to the school counselor to report the bullying. Oh, my goodness. So it's not huh. like she was just so... Um, but she, the girl didn't tell her mom fully what was going on. She was just like, oh, this girl's going in my locker. 
So then the mom got her a new lock for the locker, and then she thought it was okay. But because most most children who are bullied, and again, I, I've spoken to over 25,000 students, uh, teachers wow. across the United across States. Across the country, and, right? And, and out yeah. of the country probably. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yes, in Canada and then um, in the U.S., at U.S. schools, and um, as well as I've spoken in the media overseas and stuff, even in mm-hmm. Dubai and United Arab mm-hmm. Emirates. And, um, but all m- most of the students, the teens who are, are have been bullied or harassed, and most kids at one point or another have been, um, I was most people have. Uh, you know, when I'm at a school and I'm like, you, how you, many you, of you have been bullied or harassed? All the hands go up. Right. You know, even all the teachers, you know, so. Um, you know, but, sometimes yeah. they used to say, oh, he's picking on me. That That isn't quite the same thing that we're talking about, is it? No. I mean, like I said, when they're going up and saying, I'm going to kill you after school. I mean, like the young lady right. in the film who we talk about, she was threatened with death and she believed it because in a town near hers, a girl was drowned to death by other teens. So this wasn't something out of the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. And one of the girls who especially was sort of the ringleader in bullying her, who was named in the suicide note, um, one of the girls was the daughter of a prominent police officer in town. Mm -hmm. So it's not like she thought, oh, I can go to the police because... Now she didn't feel safe. girl's dad was the police and mm-hmm. the girl said to her my dad's a cop and he can do whatever to your family as was reported mm-hmm. to me that she said that so so yes yeah, so in this uh with this uh girl uh, that we discussed in the film um like i said that the family wanted her story to be told uh they talk about how yes in her suicide note she just thought that that was the only way for everybody to be safe was if she removed herself from the equation. Wow. Um, so How long ago just like, was this, oh, she was bad. Um, hmm. Like several years ago, maybe even uh, 10 years ago. And we wanted okay. to follow, we wanted to follow the family story because mm-hmm. one of the things too, that we come across with, uh, these incidents and that I've heard from parents that I've spoken to who've lost a child to suicide due to bullying, the parents say that their friends uh, don't, in community, maybe don't understand that it's a forever loss. And while that's mm-hmm. common sense, it's not that communities or friends will feel like, oh, well, your daughter or son committed suicide a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. Like, so you're okay now, right? You're better. Right, like move Everything's on. All right. right. Yeah. And, yeah. and it doesn't like, work no, like that. that. Right, that seat at the table. You know, we, we all know from the loss of a, a, a loved one that mm-hmm. it's always a gaping hole. There's no closure. That's such a false narrative. Uh so, yeah, there's always that place at the table that's empty. Okay. There's always that mm-hmm. space not filled, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And the what if. Yeah, and yeah. we all have moments like that. You know, I mean, like, I lost my mom, but 
you know, she pa- she passed away, and but yet there's still times for me where I think, oh, this happened. Let me call her, you know, yes. uh, and tell her and this and that. It's like, oh, you know, and just for that split second, you think that. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we wanted true. to show in this documentary. We wanted to show what happened now because actually, when we were doing focus group screenings at schools and with educators, showing different uh, extended segments of the film because. All in all, I mean, I shot like 35, 40 hours, you know, and you have to condense mm-hmm. it to two hours. Um, mm-hmm. So schools and whatnot would be like, no, fly out here and just show what you have. I'm like, oh. So even at one point, you know, I'm like, well, I have it down to four hours. Okay, great. Show two hours one day and two hours the next. And Wow. But anyway, so I had them fill out questionnaires. Uh, uh, I was curious students. about that. What? Yeah. Yeah. And the the students, I mean, their written questionnaires, which I have them, are just really, uh, they're shocking, they're moving, they're compelling. Uh, I mean, some of the questions I have in the questionnaire are, you know, have you ever been bullied and what happened? Or have you ever bullied someone and why? Mm -hmm. Um, Have you ever thought of committing suicide? Uh, what part wow. of the film did you relate to most, and why? And of course, we share mm-hmm. them with the schools, like so we can say this trouble. You know, this student, you need to speak with her or him. You know, right. get them help, support, whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in doing that, in the focus groups, like I said, the the kids would all say number one, they don't want to be called a victim of bullying because they've already been targeted and harassed and stalked. You know. So they're like, I don't want to be further victimized by being called a victim. So, and like I said, they're a target. You would say, oh, well, someone's a target right. of a crime. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's uh, how I uh, term that. Uh, but also students, uh, they all related a lot of the same feelings and thoughts about it. And some students actually said, you know, I guess I am a bully. And I said, well... You've been aggressive. You can change that, though. You know, you don't have to wear a label, and no one should be labeled mm-hmm. as anything. Mm-hmm. You know, just you're committing aggressive behavior, but you can change that. But some kids would say, oh, I didn't know. I just thought, oh, well, I'm just calling them name every day or throwing stuff at them. And, oh, well, that doesn't have, like, they go, I didn't well, I see think them as funny. a real person. Yeah, right. and then they realize, Did well, you? I now see the hurt it can cause. Did you find in the research of doing this, speaking about the bully now this, in this part, were, did you find that any of these bullies themselves had been bullied either from other children or parents or someone in their life? Was there any correlation between that? Sure. Yes. Yeah. That's a short answer, yes. Yeah, that that I, is definitely... I, something yeah that we mm-hmm. discussed yeah what, what what was the reaction when the what you you said that you gave them questionnaires which i think is brilliant um did you see did you get a sense that the awareness level in schools where you went was was so dramatically improved that that bullying had begun to be controlled somewhat and we're talking as, as far back as Middle school, junior highs, or are we going all the way back to elementary school? Right. Um, the, well, the focus groups that we did, we did from age 10 and up. Uh, because oh, I just, elementary. I would tell yeah, you know, kind of mm-hmm. as they're slightly moving into middle. Um, I would leave it up to the schools, but if I got a request for an elementary school, I would say, you know, just I don't, 
I don't feel comfortable doing it for with any student that's under 10. And, of course, the schools all got parents' right. permission and all that. Permission. But, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, but, um, yes, I'm sorry. What was the question? Yeah, ages. Uh, no, I just what I, I, what I was curious to know the, the bottom age of, of what oh, you were. Yeah, of, and of also. The, so you're talking 10. Right, and if if it helped curb bullying at the schools, and and yes, the answer to that right. too is 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 yes. Uh, like at one, uh, at one location, uh, like in the state of Arizona, uh, they had me mm-hmm. come out, um, uh, and they did a mixture of middle school and high school. So they had me out there for like three days, and for two days I did speaking and showing uh, extended. Uh, versions of the film uh, with the mm-hmm. questionnaires. And anyway, so maybe we had like um, three full showings the one day and two the next, and they bust in other, you know, students from other schools into this one school's auditorium. So we kind of did everything from there over the course of two days. So I don't know how many wow. schools total it was, you know, but mm-hmm. um, maybe I'd say four or five schools total. And anyway, hmm. um, at the one high school there, uh, dean of students, uh, she called the next day and said the day after I spoke and whatnot, she said that there was a line down the hallway, her words, down the hallway of students lining up to speak to the school counselors uh, about yeah whether they had been bullied, whether they were committing bullying, and she said mm-hmm. it was just like the lines were down what the hallway. What an impact. Out of the building. Yeah, no so, kidding. I think it would be really, really, I think it would be really um, important before all of a sudden our hour is up because it's approaching that. And that would be, for those that are listening to our show, how can they get in contact with you and your website information? I think that would be really key for people to know that. My website is CassidyMcMillan.com and the Mm -hmm. film's website is BulliesandFriends.com. Uh, Perfect. But to okay, me that's directly, especially at CassidyMcMillan.com, and uh, email and contact that's form great. and all that is on there. Because you know, because somebody may be listening that may really want, maybe they're very active in their parent group at their school and would really like to be able to bring that information to their school. I would think that anybody that's a parent listening to this would want this information shared so that um, whether you, because you, I, you know, when you start seeing your children in, expressing signs of, of depression and things like that, you want to be able to know what would be a great way to talk with them so they can tell you, I would imagine, what's going on in their lives, I think would be so key. Right. And, you know, so things yeah, like two things I recommend to parents, uh, two key questions that they can ask their son or daughter every day when they come home from school uh, that can really be, can really facilitate them knowing what's going on with their child and also maybe to see if there's any indication of they're being bullied or if they're being aggressive. The two questions being uh, for every parent guardian to ask their child every day is one what was the best thing that happened today and why and that why part is very important 
and mm-hmm. the second thing is what's the worst thing that happened today and at school mm-hmm. and why? And from there can open is, the doors of communication. Because most parents, right, when the children come home, they go, how's your day at school? Good. The door slams to their bedroom. You know, or, or, you know, they say, good, I'm going over to my friend's house. Or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, or how was school okay? Yep. And then, you know, so you're not getting anything with that, sort of a closed question. But this way, by asking mm-hmm. those two open-ended questions, it can really Excellent. let you know Excellent exactly advice. what's going on. You know, I, I, I'm so glad you had an opportunity to say that because I actually have a very good friend that I'm sure is listening to this show right now. His name is Russell, and he actually does that with his kids every single day, and I just think that's so brilliant. Uh, I want to thank you, Cassidy, for, for joining me, for for being part of this very special show between your successful career and your acting and then this enormously important documentary. And I hope that people that are listening will really check you out. Your last name is spelled M-C-M-I-L-L-A-N. Cassidy is C-A-S-S-I-D-Y. And I hope that people will reach out to you. I hope you get the funding that you need. I hope that I've been able to um, support you in that, and I look forward to hearing um, the great things that will happen as your film continues to move forward. But I will say at this point, perhaps, you know, we'll visit it again. Uh, let me know. We don't have to wait two years for an update. So I want to just thank you once again for, for being an excellent guest, and I look forward to knowing more about you and, and when your next acting gig is, you know, Keep me posted, and I'll make sure that I share it um, with my with my Facebook friends as well. So until next time, everybody, I just want to say thank you, Cassidy, and to all of you listening, and I look forward to having you join me next week when we're talking all about Meals on Wheels. It's always an interesting uh, Monday for me, so I look forward to that. And thank you once again for joining me today. Bye, Cassidy. Bye. Thank you. Uh Uh-huh. This is a story about doers, wings, and neighbors. When you're creating the energy that keeps doers doing, you can't lose sight of the bigger picture. Like in 75, a hiker found endangered butterflies near Chevron's El Segundo refinery. An El Segundo blue. An El Segundo. What are the odds? When Chevron doers heard about the colony in their backyard, they protected the habitat and planted the only thing they eat. Buckwheat. Picky. And we keep planting. Chevron, finding better ways to do what they do to keep El Segundo doing. Even for our littlest neighbors.